Good morning, church. It's so good to be with you all this morning. We're going to be in John 6. You can turn there with me now. So I heard you got to, you got to have some of my coworkers up here last week worshiping with you all. That was, that was great. That was our students, Pastor Trey, and one of our worship leaders, Malia. And I know they had a great time, so thanks for having them up here. Yeah, so I'm the family pastor at Arcadia, and I also have some executive pastor-type functions there. I've been there about four years. Before that, I was in Los Angeles working at a church called Reality LA out there as a kids and youth director for about four years again. And then before that, yes, I was here. And the very first meetings of Redemption Flagstaff were in my wife and I's apartment, which was cramped and terrible. We got out of there as soon as we could and into the Seventh-day Adventist place and, and so on. So, yeah, we met at that uh, behind the natural grocers, the building with the cow in the front of it. That's, that's kind of where we met. So, yeah, so I thought to help you get to know me a little bit better, right off the bat, we'll start with a blitz round of questions, okay? So I'm going to ask myself and answer them myself um, because I thought that'd help you get to know me a little bit. I'm married to Helena. We're coming up on nine years in less than a month, which is crazy. Eleanor is my daughter. She's eight, and she actually was born um, in the Flagstaff Church plant, so she is forever known as the Flagstaff mascot, which I'm sure she'll love hearing that the older she gets. Uh, we also have a son, Roland, who's six. He's our little California boy. He was born, born during our time there. Uh, you should also know I like motorcycles a lot. And so I teach motorcycle safety classes, kind of a side hustle, but I'm certified through the state to do that. Another thing you should know, if you want to talk sports, I'm probably not your guy to talk about sports type things. But if you want to talk about nerd culture stuff, hit me up, we'll talk after service, okay? So make a note of that. And lastly, you should know that I just, I love this church. I love what God's doing up here. Um, and we are rooting for you in Arcadia. And I love Anthony and his wife, Jess, and the leaders of the church. And this might sound like a gimme, but I love the Bible. I love God's word and I love Jesus and I can't wait to share what I have. I think God has for us today. So before we do that, let's just pause for a sec, if we can, and just pray. So as we pause, just take a second and consider, what's your weekend been like? Where are you at in your anxiety level, your stress level? Let's just take a second now to surrender that to God. So if you could, let's just close our eyes and we'll pause for a second and pray for God to bless our time. God, I believe it's your word that's powerful, not mine. So we pray that we as your church would hear your word for us this morning that it would be greatly encouraging for us. God, that it would humble us as sinners, rightly viewing ourselves and rightly viewing you, God, that you would be glorified today, God. Please be glorified in the words that are said, in your word as it's studied. We pray that uh, you would bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing our look at John's um, account of the story of Jesus from the Gospel of John. And we have wrapped up chapter 5, so we're going to be jumping into chapter 6 today. We're going to do verses 1 through 21. And we're covering mainly two miracle stories of Jesus. One, where he feeds the 5,000. And the next, where he's walking on water. So two really important, really big miracles. And I just want you to know, we're going to try to spend a little more time on the walking on water, and we're going to try to skim, if we can, the feeding the 5,000. Not because the feeding the 5,000 is not important. In fact, did you know 
that Jesus feeding the 5,000 is the only miracle of Jesus other than the resurrection that's in all four gospels. It's the only one. So it's really important. It's vital, actually. If you look at the structure of John's book, it, it all leads up to and falls from this point. It's built with this as one of the center points of his whole book. So it's a very important story. But if you remember less than two years ago, we went through that Love Walked Among Us series. Anyone remember that? In that, we went through this exact passage where Jesus is feeding the 5,000. And here in Flagstaff, John Horry came and he taught on that and he drew out some really great implications. And I just would encourage you, go back and listen to that. But because of that, we're gonna pull out a couple things but try to spend more time on the walking on water. So if you wanna look up John Horry's sermon, which I'd encourage you to do, go to Flagstaff's website. It's from March 10th, 2019. It's number nine in that series where it looks at this exact passage. So let's read together the first four verses of John 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. You notice the very first words John uses are after this. So we should be asking, after what? What was chapter 5 about again? What's going on? Well, you can think of after this as like a narrative tool that John uses to jump ahead in the story. Think of it like a fast forward button. After this, yada, yada, yada. Here's what happened next, okay? I think it's helpful to understand that from the other gospel accounts, we know that Jesus recently found out that his friend and forerunner, John the Baptist, was killed, that he was imprisoned and was beheaded. So Jesus is probably grieved and saddened and bereft. His disciples, his team, they've taken a hit right here. And he says to them, okay, come on, let's, let's get out of here. Let's get out of town. Let's, let's get away for a little R&R. So Jesus starting from one side of the Sea of Galilee where it's more populated, more people there, more crowded, decides let's go to the more wildernessy side to get away for a little R&R. How many of us feel like we could use that already? We're two weeks into 2021. How many of us feel like I could use a little R&R? I could use a break already. We just got back to work and we feel like that. Well, you might think that here it's setting up for a sermon about what Christian retreat looks like. Well, you'd be wrong to think that because Jesus immediately gets interrupted. He wants to get away to rest. He gets interrupted immediately. Why? What happens? The crowd follows him. How big was this crowd? Most people agree. You might know this. About 15,000 people. So the Orpheum here seats 1,000. So just picture 15 of those. Is that, is that helpful? Not at all. 15 Orpheum theaters. Anyway. So why such a big crowd? Why are they following him? Well, like it says, they've seen the miracles. They want to be healed. They want to see this guy and touch him and hear him speak. They know the prophecies. They're waiting for rescue. They know that someone is coming to free them, and they're wondering, is this the king? Is this the guy we've been waiting for? These are desperate people. This area was more like a poor farming area. They were overtaxed, overtired, looking for cheap health care, 
and hoping for a miracle. But church, this is Jesus' kind of crowd. These hungry, desperate people, this is where Jesus is drawn to. So he's up on the mountain. He sits with his disciples to figure out what to do. And again, another gospel account tells us he begins teaching the people here. Probably a version of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, sermon, we're all about the kingdom of God. And so let's keep reading 5 through 9 of chapter 6. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii. Most people agree about six months' salary. A 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Jesus, despite trying to get away, doesn't send them away. He doesn't shoo them away, being annoyed, like, hey, I'm trying to get away. You guys are following me. Think about that for a second. Remember, this is more like a wilderness area. The people probably came a long way to see him. And I love here how it describes Jesus as he lifted up his eyes in verse 5. The image in my head is always like a superhero film, right? The camera zooms in quick on Superman's eyes and he just like lifts his eyes up. And you know something really cool is gonna happen? You see, I warned you, nerd references are gonna be more my thing. All right, let me try a sports one. So it's like the, when the ball goes towards the thing and it's like slow-mo and then they all win and people freak out. Anyway, you get the idea. I love that little slice of narrative too about Philip, Jesus testing Philip. Philip is apparently that pragmatic type. His head is so full of reasons why it could never work that he can't see what Jesus is doing here or what he's capable of. He's testing his disciples and they're all failing. Why? Why are they failing? I don't think they know yet exactly who Jesus is. I don't think they know what he's capable of. Yet, you notice Philip answers a question that Jesus never even asked. Um, he didn't say, where should we get bread from? No, that is what he said, not how much money do we need, right? So Philip's answering the wrong question. As if Jesus is reaching through his pockets and he's like, do you have any money? I don't have any money. We know that Jesus' pockets were empty. But Philip doesn't see that the heavenly banks are filled to the brim. They're overflowing. And Jesus doesn't knock the disciples upside the head for failing the test, which is good news for us. He's more like a patient, loving shepherd. And I got to be honest, as I'm studying this passage, Psalm 23 is just ringing in my head. And many of us know this, this famous passage, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, what? Want. He leads me beside green grass pastures quiet waters. He restores our frenzied, worried souls. Is that something we need still today? For Jesus to calm and speak to our frenzied and worried souls. So let's see what this good shepherd does next in 10 through 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. Does that sound familiar to Psalm 23? 
So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. I should say here, in case it's distracting, it's not like the women and children had to stand and the men got to sit down. I feel like I should probably just say that. It's a way to count the heads of the household, that 5,000 number. That's why we get it closer to 15. Okay, verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered him up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So a couple points I want to pull from in this miracle, then we'll keep going. So first, Jesus, the good shepherd, doesn't just meet their need. Notice, he lavishes abundant provision over them. This is the kind of shepherd he is. Jesus saw that people were hungry. He didn't just meet their need. There were 12 baskets left over, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is Jesus' math. He takes the little and he makes it much. He does the same thing with you and I. We're at our best when we're at our weakest. Pastor Anthony taught on this a few short weeks ago when we announced Vince's transition away. He rightly recognized that this leaves us currently in a more weakened state than we were before and rightly encouraged that that might be exactly where Jesus has us right now and where he'll continue to use us. God can work with that weakness. By the way, if you grew up in the church like me, you might be so familiar with this miracle story that it's kind of lost its impact on you. It's one of the cool things about being a parent of young kids. I'm reading this passage to them, and they're following along, they're tracking the logic, okay, five loaves, two fish, and then they were all fed and 12 baskets left over. They're going, wait, 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 what did I miss here? How many loaves were there? Oh, there there are five loaves. Okay, how many fish? Two. How big were those loaves? I just love them trying to figure it out, like this massive loaf of bread and five of those. I'm like, no, they were normal-sized little bread. He's like, what? oh, so oh, it was like a miracle. God did that. I'm like, yeah, God did that. And if you think about how amazing this miracle is, as amazing as it is, it only had a temporary effect. You ever think about that? That mere hours later, all these people were hungry again. They're ready for more. And so I think there's something bigger Jesus is doing here with this miracle. I think there's a bigger point that he's trying to make here. And the payoff of which comes in the text we're going to cover next week. I think Jesus is showing his mastery and brilliance in discipling simultaneously the crowd, that many people, and he's discipling his his team, his twelve. He's testing them, but he's primarily teaching them through his actions. Watch what kind of shepherd I am. He's teaching the large crowd and feeding them, providing, but he's also saying, you're going to be hungry again. You're going to come back, and then I'll tell you the real point of all this. And the right response for all, for the disciples and the crowd, is full dependence on Jesus I think that's exactly where he wants them to be. They're fully dependent on him, both of them. We don't have enough money to feed these people, and now the bread's run out, I'm hungry again. They're dependent on Jesus. And now that bread of life conversation will be laid out more next week as Pastor Anthony gets into that, so you have to wait and come back 
for that one. Side note here, if you'd like to, in your community groups, in your families, do a comparison study of this passage and Exodus 14 through 16 and 2 Kings 4. If you overlap those, and I think you'll find some really interesting um, comparisons that we don't have time to get into this morning, but they're really fascinating. I wish we could get into it here. Okay, so now the people are full. They're content, and they start thinking, okay, okay, wait a sec. This guy just fed all of us. That's what a king is supposed to do. A king provides for his people, okay. Wait, did he just do a miracle? Because, because the prophets do that. God's prophets do that. Could this guy be the one that we're waiting for? The one who's going to get the Roman government off our back and finally set us free as a people? Is this the guy? Remember, Israel was a Roman-occupied people. They were taxed and oppressed, and God promised a deliverer. They thought it was going to be from the Roman government. Is this him? Is this our guy? Verses 14 through 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You know what's interesting here is that the people are right. They're absolutely right. Notice it's not a prophet, but the prophet. And they want him as king. I think it's easy to say that the 12 disciples are probably swept up in this as well. Which is maybe why after this he goes away alone. It might be why they, the disciples, encounter a storm after this as another test. And so if they're right, why does he escape? Isn't that interesting? Why does he avoid the title? He just runs away. They're going to make him king. And he goes, I'm going, to, I'm going to go this way. Because Jesus doesn't work on our timeline. He knew this was not the right time. And Jesus knew this was not the right way. I don't think they would have liked him as king because their expectations were not going to be met. That was not his goal. They wanted a conquering king with an earthly throne and crown. He knew that his earthly kingship wouldn't give them what they wanted or what they thought they needed. But church, he's often not the kind of king we want, but he's always the king we need. Amen? In Israel, there was a long line of good and bad kings. None of them delivered. There was another way that Jesus came as king, another way that he came to fulfill that role. And isn't this what love is in some way? Sometimes giving us what we need over what we want. Parents in the room, you know this. What your kid wants is not often what they need or good for them. If God thought that the greatest needs of the people would be met by a political leader, he would have sent one. He didn't come to conquer nations, but to conquer sin. Their problem was sin, not Rome. And his kingly coronation will come. But it'll come with a crown made of thorns instead of gold. Through mocking instead of praising. Through beatings instead of blessings. Down a road paved not with flowers and robes, but suffering. And finally, death. But church, he's not in the grave now. He's seated on the right hand of God on the throne in heaven as king. 
And his kingdom is broken through now, through you and me, the church. And I deeply believe that this good news is what our country and our world and we need so desperately to hear that the peace and hope that we're all desperate for is found in Jesus, in his kingdom. So instead of going with this kingly uprising, Jesus instead retreats, escapes their grasp, turns from the crowd and their crown and goes off alone, further up and further into the mountains. In another gospel account, it describes Jesus as sending his disciples back across the lake, maybe because of the dangerous situation brewing there, or maybe because they were part of it. In any case, he sends them away while he goes up and watches them, actually, it says, from the mountaintop. So keep that image in mind as we read the next part here. John 16, 6, 16 through 17. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. What was Jesus doing all that time? Well, we don't know, but we can be pretty sure he was praying. He knows his connection to the Father is where his wisdom, sense of mission, his love, his peace, bringing his confidence, that's where it all comes from. And he often models this practice for us, and it challenges me, this practice of Jesus, to retreat to the mountain, to prayer, to his Father in times of difficulty. Where do you retreat when the pressure builds? To our phones? A little numbing behavior ought to fix that. To our friends and family, which are good gifts. Do we use that for comfort, though, for even avoidance? Church, if, I mean, Jesus had family, he had friends, and instead of going to them, he goes to his heavenly father. And church, if Jesus had everything he needs in the father alone, don't we? I don't have to list out the pressures over this church family right now. You all feel it. Are we turning to God in this hard season? He's there. He's always available to us. And even if you haven't, you can start right now. He's there. I confess my pattern is to try and be alone with my thoughts, kind of like Jesus. But I'll confess that often the Father is not on my mind when I do that. I just want the space. I just want to get away and like not have to deal with that. That's more like avoidance than connection to the Father. Church, what if in times of pressure, and there's certainly more to come, What if in times of pressure we sought God first and we waited on him first? What if we modeled Jesus in this way? What would the result be? I think we would look a lot more like Jesus. Imperfect, but we'd look a lot more like him. I think we'd emulate this quote that I'm going to read. It's from an early church father, a Puritan church father, Samuel Rutherford. He says this. This is what I think we would look more like that we believe God's word and power more than we believe our own feelings and experiences. I'm going to read that again, that we, the church, would believe God's word and power more than we believe our own feelings and experiences. He goes on to say, your rock is Christ. And it's not the rock which ebbs and flows, but your sea. Verse 18, the sea 
became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. And he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Most commentators agree they were rowing in this wind for six to eight hours and had only gone about halfway across the lake, three or four miles. Don't skip past that too fast. Think about that. Think about the frustration, the exhaustion, the toil of rowing that long. I don't know if you have much experience rowing a boat. I've done it like once and it's exhausting. They're taking shifts. They're exhausted. They're worried. They're fearful that they may drown. This is getting bad. It's getting desperate. All the while, where's Jesus? Do you remember? He's up on the mountain watching them. He's watching them. Why? Why let them struggle like this? Well, I have a few guesses, but the first I just need to say, because Jesus is God and I'm not, that's why he's doing it. I don't have to know, but I I know enough to know that. He doesn't do things the way I would. One commentator said this, if the feeding sign calls his disciples to faith in his provision, his works seen, in the storm, Jesus is asking his disciples to trust his unseen care and concern for them. Isn't that good? I'm going to read that again. If the feeding sign calls his disciples to faith in his provision, his work seen in the storm, Jesus is asking his disciples to trust his unseen care and concern for them. This reminds me, firstly, that Jesus sees our struggles. He's on the mountain in victory as we're in the valleys struggling, but it's not unseen struggles. Picture Jesus here more like a father rooting for his child to to make it through, to have faith, to pass the test. That's more of what Jesus is doing here. And we know that God is also Emmanuel. He's with us in those trials. Right, But here he's shown as Jesus watching over in the trial. And eventually, when the time's right, he intercedes. They have no other hope at this point. Their toil, their labor is pointless. It's futile. Two steps forward, three steps back kind of a thing. And they, being already terrified of drowning... They see Jesus coming towards them, actually walking on the water, and are again terrified. But this time, they're terrified of Jesus. And maybe for the first time, their fear is in the right place. Maybe this is the first time that they've actually seen Jesus for who he really is. Maybe they're starting to see that now. And all of a sudden, when they see Jesus, they're less afraid of the storm. Their fear moves instead to the creator of the storm. And in these seven words that he says in response, we see the greatest miracle of all. It is I. Do not be afraid. Church, that God is for us, the creator of the storm is for us, and we do not need to be afraid, is as much a miracle as the feeding of the 5,000. It's as much a miracle as the walking on water, 
What looms larger in your life, Redemption Flagstaff? The storms of your life or the king over those storms? To which are you more afraid? So he rescues them from their own futility and in his power, their boat is immediately on shore. Apparently, another miracle. But more importantly, their struggle and toil ends when they invite Jesus in. Psalm 77, if you want to turn there, it has some amazing overlaps with our story today, as well as the passages I mentioned earlier of Exodus 14 and and so on. This is going to help to kind of summarize where we've been so far and pull out some different themes. And so I'm actually going to read all of it, and it'll be up on the screen as well. So I definitely would encourage you to get cozy. It's not crazy long. It's not anything too crazy, but I would encourage you to work to stay engaged because when we read longer passages like this, we tend to start to glaze over it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The payoff really comes at the end. So in the middle, you're going to start to feel like, okay, where's this going? Just wait. At the end, it all comes in. So please do the work to stay engaged here. Psalm 77, verse 1. I cry aloud to God. Picture this from the perspective of the disciples in the boat, struggling, rowing. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled, I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end? For all time, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I'll ponder all your work. Meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out with water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Aaron, this is the work of the good shepherd, church. He rescues Because Jesus is the good shepherd, we don't have to be afraid. We can engage without fear. What a gift. We, because he's the good shepherd, can be certain of our future as part of his kingdom. We can be confident that he sees us, knows us, and is familiar with our struggles. 
Because Jesus is the good shepherd, we can be truly filled by the bread of life and not engage in the world out of an emotionally and spiritually empty cup. Because Jesus is the good shepherd, we can join him in his work of reconciliation in the world. How? Well, first, by communing with our Heavenly Father like Jesus did. Next, by engaging from that place of love and rest to a hurting world looking for answers. And exactly what that looks like will need discernment in your circles of influence, in your relationships. But we know that we can't stay on the mountaintop. Jesus came down. The Good Shepherd has some good news for us all that's desperately needed. And how amazing, what a, what a gift, church, that we get to join him in mission, in his mission as his hands and feet. So let's pray together for God's help as we do that this week. God, we thank you that you are good, that you're for us, that in our fear you say to us, it is I, do not be afraid. I'm here, I'm for you. God, we... Um, pray that we would continue to wrestle with the implications of this, that spirit, if you're wrestling with something in our hearts, that we wouldn't ignore it and place it aside, but we'd engage with it. God, what are you showing us? Make us more like you, Jesus. We thank you for your word. It is so powerful. There are hours of other things we could draw out, but if not for one thing, God, we, we can confess together, you are the good shepherd. You lead us well. You guide us well. God, bring us to the green pastures, the still waters, and God, restore our frenzied, worried souls that we could bring that into the world. Lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.